Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. Thank you for joining this special edition of Essential Questions as we ask what's going on in Israel in the midst of this terrible attack and the war that is ensuing. On the morning of October 7th, 2023, the 22nd day of Tishri, 5784, the morning of Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah, the terrorist organization Hamas mounted a sophisticated surprise attack on the south of the state of Israel. Launching thousands of missiles that overwhelmed Israel's Iron Dome capacities, hundreds and hundreds of terrorists breached the border and attacked Israeli kibbutzim, cities, and towns all across southern Israel. The atrocities that were committed overwhelmed the mind and the soul. At a dance party near Kibbutz Re'im, more than 260 young people were surrounded and killed, and many more wounded as they tried to escape. Terrorists penetrated communities and went door to door, attacking and killing people in their homes, separating parents from their children, carrying off women, children, elderly, and entire families as hostages into Gaza. More than 300,000 reserve troops have been mobilized. The nation has declared war. At last count, the death count from the initial attack in three days of war surpasses 900 people. The events since Saturday morning confound the imagination. Israel has suffered a wound more grievous than at any time in her history, and there are plenty of horrible wounds before this. The Jewish people endured more bloodshed on Saturday, losing more precious souls in one day than any day since the Holocaust. The entirety of the Jewish people around the world, and especially in the state of Israel, are reeling. We are angry, confused, terrified, grief-stricken, and sick with worry. And there was no one that I wanted to talk to about what's happening in Israel in this moment than Rabbi Joshua Weinberg. Josh serves as the Vice President for the Union for Reform Judaism for Israel and Reform Zionism and is the Executive Director of ARTSA, the Association of Reform Zionists of America. He was ordained from the Hebrew Union College in the Israeli Rabbinic Program in Jerusalem. He came on Aliyah to Israel in 2003 and serves as a reserve officer in the IDF Spokesman's Unit. Josh has taught and lectured widely throughout Israel, the United States, and Europe, as well as on Kivunim and Shnat Netzer gap year programs. Originally from Chicago, where his father, Michael Weinberg, my friend, served as rabbi of Temple Beth Israel in Skokie for 34 years. He earned his bachelor's from the University of Wisconsin in Hebrew literature, political science, and international relations, and a master's from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Jewish education. Josh, thanks so much in the midst of what I know is an agonizing and difficult time for you to be with us. Well, thank you, uh, Dan, Rabbi Levin, and uh, thank you for, for, for inviting me and uh, making space for this during this time. So, you know, we're all watching television and reading Facebook and following things in the news, in the various different portals that we access. And we hear about what's happened there. But as someone who is so intimately involved with the communities in the South and in the state of Israel, what can you tell us about what it was like for those communities in Southern Israel in the midst of the attack? 
Well, thank you. And I think it's hard for any of us to really comprehend the magnitude of such an attack. And uh, we read the accounts. Um, I think I think it, what it was like for most people is just sheer fear and, and disbelief. And a little bit I'll also say about struggling with their faith in, in the government and the army to protect them. Um, I think, you know, the border has been so secure, even to imagine, we know in years past in different uh, skirmishes and wars that we've had with Gaza, that the tunnels were dug under Gaza and into Israel where terrorists could really infiltrate and, and come out. And Israel poured a great deal of resources and, and finances into putting a cement block very deep in the ground to prevent those you know, access through the tunnels. And this was a calculated precision attack uh, in which they just bulldozed right through the fence right there. And so people were sort of in shock and couldn't believe that something like this could happen. And then we began to hear the stories of the people uh, locked in their safe rooms and their mamadim in their homes on 22 different kibbutzim and moshavim throughout the area, not knowing what is exactly happening. Uh, not being able to, you know, contact or have, you know, talk to the, to the outside world, uh, and just sheer and and utter fear for either death or, God forbid, um, people being kidnapped. And um, just one account, you know, I recommend people reading the account of uh, Haaretz jur- journalist and diplomatic correspondent Amir Tibon, uh, who talked of his three-year-old and one-year-old in a really harrowing and, and unbelievably heroic tale of them, you know, having to keep quiet for 10 hours in the dark in a room. I know, you know, when my kids were three and one, there was no way that they would be able to do that. And then his father, a retired army general, also very connected to our reform community in Tel Aviv, uh, coming down to, to rescue them and going hand to hand combat with, uh, with, with terrorists and, and, you know, and, 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 and gunshots and gunfighting. In addition to the thousands and thousands of rockets that have been sent, you know, sometimes we don't think about the magnitude and the fear and the trauma that those endure. And so just, just a terrible, tragic, tragic war that is going on right now. And I'll say even a massacre. We know that the numbers are now up to over 900 people killed, 900 people killed, uh, which is just unfathomable for us right now. So you've served in the IDF and you know what it is. Tell me, what is it like for a soldier to be called up for active duty? What is it that these young men and women, these hundreds of thousands of people now who are mobilized, what are they thinking and feeling in this moment? If you can share a little bit of your experience. Sure. And for full disclaimer, I was really more, I was in the the spokesperson's unit. So I, I was not an active combat duty soldier, um, although I do know many people. And I can think what, you know, I can share that what they're experiencing right now is, is again, fear, because we know that there's going to be an air incursion into Gaza uh, that's already begun, of course. And the IDF from the defense establishment is trying to pinpoint and precision target Hamas areas and Hamas headquarters and Hamas, you know, holdouts within the Gaza Strip. And everyone, of course, is trying to uh, locate the the kidnapped uh, people. You know, over 100 people have been kidnapped, women, children, elderly, which makes it really, really difficult. And the only way to do that is really through a ground incursion. Um, and we've seen this in the past. In We avoided it in 2021, but in 2014, it was just horrible. 
And so over the 300,000 people who have been called up right now, we know that that is likely going to be a scenario, uh, which means that people are being called up to be directly in harm's way uh, to go in and try to save the lives of those who are kidnapped. Can't imagine what it's like to be that soldier or to be the parent of those soldiers who, uh, who are going to have to do that, that terrible duty. So give us, if you can, a, a little bit of an historical understanding. Who is Hamas? Yeah. Where did they come from? What do they represent? How did they come to power? And what could possibly have been their motivation in this terrible, terrible attack? Yeah, it's a really important question, and we need to uh, we, we need to really understand. And I'll, I'll try and do that without going back to you know Avram Avinu or to even David Ben Gurion. A few times, a, a few pieces along the timeline that we do need to understand is that, of course, after the Six Day War of 1967, Israel's borders you know grew exponentially, grew you know by tripled essentially, and they gave back the Sinai Peninsula in 1979 as part of the agreement with with Egypt, the Camp David Accords, and by 80. Two was already evacuated, um, and they still maintained control over you know, what some call the West Bank, what others call Judea and Samaria, and the Gaza Strip. And Israel sort of saw those areas as holding on to them ostensibly temporarily, uh, in that they would always be part of a negotiation for a lasting and sort of final status arrangement. Since 1967, you know, there have also been additional settlements, you know, Jewish settlements established there in those areas. There were 14 settlements in in the Gaza Strip and several hundred in uh, in the in the West Bank or at least around 147 in the West Bank um, and the Oslo process tried to gradually grant over towards a two-state solution which would uh, essentially be based on this land for peace equation in which Israel would give the land that it was holding to the Palestinians to establish a state, which would then result in three things, in peace, recognition, and the end of conflict. Okay, The Oslo process came out of a time period from about 1987 to 1991, which most of us sort of refer to as the first intifada. Now, during the intifada, when violence broke out with the Palestinian desire to sort of shake off Israel's occupation. And here, I just want to put a caveat, if I can, that we sometimes, meet, when someone says the word occupation, we have to understand what they mean by that. Okay, do they mean the occupation of 1967 or the occupation of 1948? If they mean 1948, that they're essentially saying that the state of Israel is not legitimate and it is illegally occupying Palestinian land. And that's, that's right. important it's an important distinction to make. Yeah, when you hear people say, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, these are people who are not talking about a two-state solution. These are people who are talking about a one-state solution that involves the right. expunging of Israel from the map, right? Yes, generally speaking, I, I would agree. So during that first intifada in 1988, a separate group was created. The Palestinians were you know, sort of being ruled by the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, which after 1993 became the Palestinian Authority and was set to sort of become the um, you know, established government of the state of Palestine once it, should, uh, once it should be established. The group that they created was an Islamic religious group. I, I don't like to use the word fundamentalist. That feels more like a Christian word than, than, than an Islamic word, but 
Okay, you get the point. Um, and they call themselves the Islamic Resistance Movement, or in Arabic, the Haraka al-Mukawwama al-Islamiyya. And if you take the acronym of those words in Arabic, it spells the word Hamas. Okay, so Hamas is specifically Islamic, which the PLO, even though they're all Muslims, is not a religious fundamental organization. And they wrote in their charter, which if you anyone just Googles the Hamas charter, you'll be able to see it online, uh, that one of their clearly expressed goals uh, was to destroy the state of Israel. Very, very, very clearly laid out. And Hamas became a terrorist organization. We know that they were in charge, you know, they were responsible for many, many terrorist attacks, taking us back, you know, to when Bus 18 in Jerusalem blew up in the mid-90s, 95, 96, and, you know, in Dizengoff Center in Tel Aviv, and, and many, many terrorist attacks along the way, including thousands and thousands of rockets that had been fired over the last, you know, however, 10, 15, 20 years from Gaza into Israel. I do want to highlight an important date, an important occurrence that took place without going through the entire history, and and I will uh, for sure leave some out here, but that's what happened in 2005. 2005 is a very, very significant year for a number of different reasons, but for the, the main reason here is that after about four years of violence, which some call the second intifada, after the collapse of the Oslo process, the government led by then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon took on or passed a law called the disengagement in which they were going to remove those 14 Jewish communities or Jewish settlements from the Gaza Strip and relocate them back into Israel proper. Um, They did this unilaterally, okay, without uh, a negotiation or without getting something in return, so to speak. It was was in August of 2005. I'm sure many of you know, both you and your listeners uh, remember that time. It was very, very, very difficult, regardless of one's, you know, political position to see to see this happen. And at that time, the Palestinian community was being led by the Palestinian Authority. And elections took place in 2005. And uh, Abu Mazen or Mahmoud Abbas, who's currently the PA premier, won those elections. That was the last time, incidentally, that the Palestinians held elections. So he. He's in year 18 of his four-year term. But after, after the disengagement, in which Israel pulled out all of, its, all of the settlements there, two years later, in 2007, Hamas took over in a violent overthrowing of the Palestinian Authority. And that's critical to understand because the Palestinians of the West Bank are being ruled by the, the Palestinian Authority, the PA, under Abbas, to which there has been significant security cooperation between, you know, between them and Israel. And Gaza has been run by Hamas. There's also, you know, other smaller groups like Islamic Jihad there as well. What's interesting is that we see Hamas as, as a terrorist organization, which, which they are, uh, but some in Gaza also see them as a social welfare organization as well, providing, you know, education systems and, you know, after-school programming for for youth, for, you know, for Gazans. And they really rule the day there. Think about sort of like a, an emerging country that is ruled by a terrorist organization, also known as like Hamas-Stan. And that's what's been happening. Since the disengagement of 2005, most, a great many of the resources that have been poured into Gaza, and Israel delivers you know, building material, food, supplies, medicine, water, gasoline, electricity to the Gaza Strip. A lot of that has been taken by Hamas and essentially turned into weapons. When we think about rockets being shot or tunnels being dug, you know, where do they get the cement to build those tunnels? Where do they get the you know material to develop rockets? 
Some of that comes across through the tunnels from Egypt at the Rafiq border crossing, but some is the materials that we, you know, we have given for the development of those of Gaza, but it really has been turned into weaponry. So what, are, what were they trying to achieve? It, it, it's hard for us to understand. There's a, few, there's a few ways to think about it. Their first goal was to simply kill Jews. Okay, this was not a combat operation where one army was fighting another army. And as you mentioned in your you know, really eloquent intro, um, this came 50 years and one day since the Yom Kippur War, in which there were two armies fighting. This was a pure and simple attack on civilians. Their goal was to kill as many as possible and to take as many hostage uh, and bring them back into Gaza to then later be used as uh, negotiating chips or cards uh, in a further negotiation uh, or prisoner exchange and swap uh, with Israel. Some might speculate that a secondary goal was that they were being funded and supported by, by Iran, by the Islamic Republic of Iran, in which this was used to try and disrupt any potential for a normalization agreement with Saudi Arabia. Uh, we've seen that and we know that the Prime Minister Netanyahu was just in New York meeting with President Biden on the cusp of a potential uh, normalization agreement. We don't know the you know, backroom details of how close they were getting or not. Uh, we can only speculate, but that this was at a time when uh, you know, that was getting closer. And of course, the Saudis you know, encouraged the Palestinians to be included in that deal. And we know that this is also a moment to take advantage of the splintering within Israeli society. You know, for the past 10 months, uh, many have been uh, protesting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have been out on the streets protesting their own government because of the coalition's legislative agenda, uh, which some deem to be, including myself, to be a threat to Israel's democracy. That was a, a, a sore moment to be exploited by Hamas, which I have to say, has demonstrated their sheer barbarism and cruelty in the way that they have just killed innocents and you know dragging women and and, and children through the streets of Gaza um, has been unbelievably difficult to see. The images are are absolutely horrifying. There was one story that I heard that a woman and her four-year-old and six-month-old child were abducted and she was kept. They left the four-year-old with a shrapnel injury in his leg and the six-month-old baby at the border on the side of the road. Thank God yeah. they were found and uh, were brought to the hospital. We have no word on the the health or the welfare of their mother. Uh, but that's just one of of so many stories. So you know, we hear these stories of Hamas, where we're familiar with the need for Israel. It seems every few years to mount some kind of a campaign. There was the attack in 2014 that was precipitated by the kidnapping of three boys from a bus stop in uh, Samaria. And, I'm sorry, in Judea, in the southern part of the West Bank. And then there were all the rockets that came over, and then there was a ground incursion there. And then back in 2021, there were many rockets that went over the fence again. It seems you get more rockets raining down than actual rainfall in the state of Israel. People were kind of used to that. This 
was an attack that seemed so much more audacious and much more barbaric than anything we had really ever seen before. And so there is a question, I think, about who are the people that live in the Gaza Strip? There are two and a half million people that live in the Gaza Strip. It is the most densely populated place on the planet. And there's, you know, you hear from people, I think, in many ways, reacting with anger and frustration that they should just flatten Gaza. But of course, you can't flatten a place with two and a half million people, not if you want to hold any sense of moral valence and to never, you know, not surrender our own moral principles. So is there a way to distinguish between who is Hamas and who subscribes to Hamas or Islamic Jihad, some of these different parties and the Palestinian people? Are they one and the same? Are they different? How do we distinguish that? Yeah, really important question. And I appreciate you uh, making that distinction and saying, you know, there are people who are calling for Gaza to be reduced back into the Stone Ages. And, and of course, we can't do that. So Hamas is is a, is a terrorist organization, is an actual organization with members of it. Uh, it has a political branch as well as a military branch. And of course, of course, not all Palestinians are terrorists. So let that be said. That's really, really important to say. There are many Palestinians who want peace. There are many pe- Palestinians who just wake up in the morning and want to provide for their families and have a nice life free of anything, free of politics, free of occupation, free of all those things. And we have to support that. As a Zionist, I want to say that I deeply support the rights of a Palestinian state and Palestinians to you know, self-actualization and self-determination, all of that stuff. That is incredibly important. And I think that most of the residents um, of Gaza are, are also held hostage by Hamas, actually in that Hamas knows very well that Israel is going to have to strike back and, and, and attack Gaza. And the higher the death toll in Gaza, the more sympathy the Palestinians receive and the more the international community then attacks, uh, attacks Israel. And I know that we're going to see the, uh, the tides turn very quickly, that with any sort of retaliation that amounts here, uh, the international community will uh, look at it. We're already seeing that. We're already seeing rallies in support of Palestinian rights. Sick, I think, celebrations of Palestinians passing out candy and, and, and not just in the area, it, around the world, Palestinian community celebrating this, um, this, this unbelievable massacre. Uh, so yes, it is incredibly important to, to differentiate and to distinguish. I know many Palestinians. I know many of you know our colleagues around uh, around North America have very close connections with Palestinians, both Israeli citizens and Palestinians in the West Bank. And you know we've met with them and heard them, and 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 we want the same things. We want to work together for peace, and that's why this is not a war against the Palestinians. This is a war against Hamas, who came and carried out this this brutal massacre. And I think. To ask Israelis to have sympathy for the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip is a hard lift, given the incredible horror that has been visited on Israel in the last few days. And yet, at the same time, there is this sense that we don't want this war, this attack, to rob us of our humanity, to rob us of our principles, to make us less human. You know, there is 
always the adage from Pir Kevot, you know, in a place where there is no humanity, one must strive to remain humane. And so as I'm hearing in, in some of the briefings that I've listened to, the Israelis are still doing the roof knocking that they've become famous for before they commit a, an airstrike to warn the people in different buildings that they need to evacuate. And then, of course, at the same time, when we heard Prime Minister Netanyahu say, you need to evacuate, you need to get out, in a place like the Gaza Strip, where is it that they can go? Right. There's not much uh, territory left. And then what's going to happen once you know their homes are destroyed? It's only going to turn into a, a further or greater humanitarian disaster where it is right there. I agree with you that it's hard to have sympathy right now, especially when you saw the carnage and see this uh, terrible footage uh, that's that's going on right now. Um, I was asked by an American journalist, you know, about the possible restraint by Israel, and I, you know, I said, let me ask you a question: When, you know, how many twenty seven hundred uh, Americans were killed on September the eleventh of two thousand one? The United States entered into an eighteen year war, which claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis and Afghanis. And I said, okay, was that a proportional response? And what I think is important to maintain, you know, to be that ish b'makom on the shim, right, to be humane where there is no humanity, is that this retaliation not be motivated solely by revenge and that it be tactical and a military strike really to cripple Hamas and the Hamas, uh, you know, upper echelons of their leadership as, as much as possible. And yet at the same time, I feel like listening to the webinar that was produced by the reform movement where those who are living in what we call the Gaza envelope are so angry with their government and angry that Hamas was was allowed to continue to exist after all of these incursions there's a sense of if you want me to be able to continue to live in what has always been the state of Israel, I mean, I think that's important for people to recognize is that these communities, these kibbutzim, these agricultural communities in small cities and towns in the southern part of Israel that are absolutely beautiful places. I've visited so many times and, and met the people in these kibbutzim. These spaces were never part of an Arab country ever. From the partition plan all the way through to today, these were always part of what was the state of Israel. Sure. And I think that we, we sometimes lose, lose sight of, of that peace. And I remember visiting uh, one of the kibbutzim, Kfar Aza, a few years ago and talking with some of the people who live there. The kibbutz is idyllic. It's beautiful. And I said, why do you live here? It's so dangerous. And they said, why wouldn't we live here? It's beautiful. It's tranquil. I don't want the hustle and bustle of Tel Aviv. I don't want the craziness of Jerusalem. I just want this beautiful, idyllic place where I can raise my kids, where they can, I don't have to lock my door. They can walk from place to place. Right. They can run around. and yeah. One can only imagine how hard it is, of course, to live there. One of the things that I also think about is how many people that I met down there lived down there specifically because they tried to forge 
relationships across the border in whatever way possibly they can with their Palestinian neighbors to create initiatives for understanding and if at all possible for peace to create work. One of the the amazing things was that the leader of the regional council of that area who was killed defending his community. Yeah, Ophir Lipschkin. Yeah, whom I had met a few years ago, an incredibly inspiring man, was trying to build an industrial complex where Israelis and Palestinians could work together so that it would enrich both sides of the wall. But at the same time, you're hearing from those people saying, if you don't eradicate Hamas, like eradicate them, I'm not living here and you can't expect me to live here and you owe that to me. But the lift that will be required to eradicate Hamas is going to be extraordinary. Yeah, and it's hard to say because, look, again, we're not dealing with people in uniforms and you know, easily identifiable targets from a military point of view. You know, it's hard to say who has sympathy for Hamas and, and who doesn't. And it's just an unbelievably complex situation. And yeah, there are many along the border, as you said, you know, you know Ofer was, was, was really developing an industrial park and um, there, there have been people with an idea for a joint amusement park that would have entrances on either on either side and people could meet in the middle and, you know, that would be amazing. It is just an incredibly tragic uh, situation uh, in which none of that can happen. We know that uh, prime ministers in the past have done everything they can to allow more workers to come in from Gaza. And if you see the Erez checkpoint there, which is one of the main checkpoints for delivering, um, how do you say, like uh, supplies, essentially, um, or materials, uh, it's set up like a proper border crossing between any other country. There's, you know, an option for duty-free and passport control in which, you know, one day people could, you know, go back and forth, uh, you know, from Gaza or from Palestine to Israel and have open borders. Um, the question is really, you know, how do we eradicate Hamas? How has that happened? How do we put something else in its place. And, you know, I, I, I wish I had those easy answers. Uh, you know, anyone who does, I think will have their, you and me both. Their, their Nobel Peace Prize coming. There have been lots of plans, even, you know, the, the current head of the opposition, Yair Lapid, published a plan, uh, a development plan for Gaza, in which there would be uh, an airport and a seaport and, you know, like a Riviera, and it would be all built up. And it is just incredibly, incredibly tragic. Yeah, I think the tragedy is that since 2005, you know, almost 19 years since that disengagement, and I will talk about that in, in, a, in a moment, you know, they could have used all of that material and all of that money to build an extraordinary society. They could have built universities, they could have built infrastructure, they could have built industry, they could have developed agriculture, and instead they used all of that for materials of war. It's incredibly demoralizing just even to consider it. Yeah. One of the things that I think about, though, is that since the election last November, which created this incredibly right-wing government that came to power that has, through their proposals of judicial reform, really torn Israeli society asunder with, you know, week after week after week of protests from both sides in what way do you think that dysfunction and the divisiveness that was sort of boiling over in Israeli society, in what way did that contribute to what we saw? And in what way do you think that will impact Israel's ability to respond? Yeah, it's, 
It's almost hard to say right now because it's too early to tell. Um, I, I think it is definitely a factor that went into it, but we didn't you know, hear specifically from any party that took credit for this and said, you know, we're striking now because, um, you know, you Jews are fighting, you know, fighting each other. And so we're going to go in. Uh, we know that they had been watching very closely. They even knew about this rave, this party in nature that took place late Friday night and went, you know, to the morning in which I think over 250 people were massacred uh, from, from this party. But we do know on several occasions that the defense minister of Gallant, even back in April, publicly warned the prime minister that the army was really unfit and that resources would be taken away. And some of the high brass of the army, the top brass of the army, was refusing to show up for reserve duty because of the policies that were being taken, because of their lack of trust and faith in their own government. The chief of staff, Herzia Levy, requested an audience with the prime minister several times to explain to him where he saw some of the vulnerability, um, and that wasn't granted. And uh, this is not the time to point fingers or to lay blame right now. However, we do know that this was a colossal failure of the state of Israel and of the IDF to protect its citizens and to watch watch the border. We know that the pinpoint operation that Hamas took out included taking out in one fell swoop all of the cameras along the fence and then going into a room and and slaughtering 24 of what we call in Hebrew the Tatsbitaniot, the um, military intelligence. They, they are uh, like scouts, but watching their radar screens with every inch of that fence and they were all they were all murdered. And so we know that it's it, it's hard to say, but that whenever there is a weakness within within Israel, that uh, that gets exploited. So when we think about the response that we've seen already, I, I mean, I think about what Rabbi Nir Barkin, Kilat Yozma, who's a dear friend to to me and to our congregation, was talking about kibbutz near Oz which is bordering the Gaza Strip. And of the 320 members of the kibbutz, they lost 60 people who were murdered. Yeah, it's unbelievable. You know, you think about a community that lost one in five members, it's almost overwhelming. And he called and he spoke to uh, the leaders of of that kibbutz and says, what do you need? And they said, everything. Everything. From toothbrushes to furniture. He said, there is no point, I'm going to read from something he sent me, there is no point in me naming the whole list of items that he mentioned. The members of Nir Oz are left with nothing. They are physically, emotionally, and mentally destitute. Most of them have lost loved ones dearest to them, and they're trying their best to create initiatives to provide relief supplies. I know he said that his community was providing all kinds of care packages with hygienic products and goodies and baby formula and all kinds of different things they're collecting. There's a member of our community who created a, his own charity years ago, the Helping Israel Fund. Yeah. And he's trying to provide the kinds of things that the soldiers will need, uh, hygiene products, uh, battery backups for their cell phones, other kinds of material that will help protect the soldiers in, in their work. What are you seeing in terms of how Israel has responded as a society so far? Well, Israel is a, an incredibly resilient society that has responded you know, within minutes of people organizing 
and mobilizing and trying to provide the necessary necessary items. I'm even you know seeing pictures of our own. Uh, you mentioned Yosma, another one not not far away, Kilat Novoserzion, that has turned their synagogue into really a uh, a collection center for the necessary materials, whether it's clothing or toiletries or hygiene products or or food and medicine that are being given now to the people affected in that area, as well as other communities just simply opening their doors and saying, you have to get out of there or your house has been burned uh, and is unlivable. Come, um, I was speaking with someone on our kibbutzim in the south, in the Arava Valley near Elat, and all the way up to the north, and they all need our help. They all need our help. In addition, we know that the soldiers have been drastically underprepared in the stockpiles of you know weapons and supplies been depleted and we're talking about you know ceramic flak jackets helmets boots guns everything uh, the friends of the idf is carrying out a massive campaign and we are encouraging all of our people to come together with the jewish federations of north america for one very very significant campaign um, of course all of the other campaigns that you see are holy and are important um, I would just caution people to verify links that they have been sent because we know of increased cyber attacks that are happening. Uh, so I do want to make your listeners aware of that, um, that if you get a you know link from a friend that's been passed from a friend to a friend to a friend, we know the hundred people who were kidnapped, all of their cell phones are compromised. And so the worst thing that we could do is, you know, send to uh, what looks like a legitimate donation link and have it be uh, not uh, legitimate and have it either go to Hamas or to be spreading viruses, you know, throughout our systems. That that is a risk. But it is incredibly important now to come together to support these massive campaigns, whether it's the you know, Jewish Federation of North America supporting our own reform movement in Israel that's been doing incredible work. Our Rabbi Yael Vergan in the 10 kibbutzim around the Gaza area and the city of Sterot has been you know, just holding her people together. That That is really what's needed. There's some very real needs. I've been getting lots of different people reaching out to say how they can go and volunteer and whether that's to fight or to give support. Um, and that's, that's going to take some time to develop just yet. But right now there is a great great deal of, of need for support, uh, both financially and in kind as much as possible. I think it's so frustrating for so many of us who live here thousands of miles away. You know, I think we all resonate to those words that were written 900 years ago by Yehuda Halevi, who said, you know, my heart is in the East, but I'm at the edge of the West. And this feeling of impotence that we, we can't do but of course, you know, our tradition teaches that one of the things that we can do is tzedakah, right? So we can support the Jewish Federations of North America. Uh, and you can give to the Jewish Federation of South Palm Beach County for those who live near Temple Beth Hale here in Boca Raton. But any of the Federation communities, their emergency campaign is all going to be pooled to support the relief efforts in Israel. Please consider supporting Mug and David Adom. Uh, who are providing health and relief benefits to uh, first responders. And of course, the Israel Movement for Progressive Judaism, which is helping the individual reform congregations and communities uh, who are doing the nitty gritty on the grounds help that is necessary. You know, as you look forward, Josh, as someone who has studied Israel and and has made Israel his home for, for so long and and who 
uh, is almost as much of a Zionist as me, which is hard to imagine, but uh, I'll give you that kind of credit. What do you see looking forward? What gives you the greatest angst as you sort of think about how this is going to evolve in the days ahead? So, first of all, thank you. And um, I'm at heart uh, an optimist. And it's been hard these past two days. I mean, it's been hard to see the silver lining here through the tears. And I found myself just, uh, you know, just, I, I just broke down and started crying over Shabbat lunch with my family, with my kids. And it was very, very difficult. I think that we will come out of this and we will rebuild and we are a resilient people and a resilient nation. I, I hope that happens. My hope is that we can see through and learn how to grow and we can, we can, you know, bury our loved ones right now and really unify together to, to build our country and to build those bridges with Jews around the world. And I want American Jews to understand that we are connected, that we have a role in this. And in addition to giving tzedakah, I want to say that I want to ask all of our members, all of your listeners to reach out to their friends and family in Israel, to send that virtual hug. It, it, it matters and it helps them. And people are, are struggling right now. And we also need help here managing how to make sense of all of this, these stories. Uh, when we think about our kids who are not subscribing to the New York Times or Haaretz or the Wall Street Journal or the Jerusalem Post, uh, but are getting most of their information from social media, whether it's Instagram or TikTok, um, and don't really know how to process some of these things. Uh, when people say that you know Hamas were freedom fighters and they're just doing it against the occupation, that that is not true, okay? And that is unfortunate. Uh, and our kids need to know that um, this was just an unprovoked attack, and this was not because of any specific policy or any specific issue. Uh, and we need to help them understand that and help them do that in the ways that they uh, that they process information. But again, I, I'm, I'm given hope. And, and, and when I think about hope, I go back to our sources. Uh, as you know, Dan, you mentioned Pirkei Avot earlier. I, I'm thinking about the book of Jeremiah. And it comes from a passage that we read on the second day of Rosh Hashanah in chapter 31, where Jeremiah says to, to the people of Israel, he says, That there is hope at the end of the days that the children should be returned to their borders. Um, and that is my hope, and that is my prayer for this uh, for this moment right now. I, I so appreciate those sentiments, and, and I, I think it's important to give people a, a sense of where they can go to get good, authentic, balanced news. So one I would strongly encourage to those listening to the podcast to check out timesofisrael.com, which is an English-language Israeli online news publication, and they do a phenomenal job of presenting things in uh, as balanced, I think, as possible, given the complexities of what exists there. The other organization, especially if you have kids who are on campus or in school and aren't sure where to get good information, one organization you can check out is called Stand With Us. You can go to standwithus.com. And they provide ways for you to understand the conflict and to be able to engage in meaningful dialogue uh, with those who may be trying to obfuscate the truth. And then for those who want to read, there are many good books, too, that I would recommend. 
are uh, Ari Shavit's book called My Promised Land and Micah Goodman's book called Catch 67, two very good books. Uh, Josh, are there books or, or places you would encourage people to go to get meaningful information so they can build their knowledge base? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it can be overwhelming and one can feel like they're drinking from a fire hose with all of the information available. But I'll second your endorsement for the Times of Israel. There are some really important books coming out. Um, Professor Hillel Cohen's book uh, from from uh, recent times um, about the history of the conflict. I'd also say Daniel Sokach's book, you know, How We Talk About Israel is really is really helpful. And, and really the English language media, you know, Haaretz, Jerusalem Post, and Times of Israel are the most important uh, sources. I'll also offer the, the Promise podcast, which I think is an important uh, source for how to analyze and how to think about some of these things. Um, and uh, in, in shameless self-promotion, I'll also offer your listeners the ability to subscribe to my own newsletter in which I write once a week. Uh, I'm happy to share the link in the notes of the podcast uh, with with people. But I think none of that can replace talking to actual people. Uh, and I hope that people continue to do that. And uh, and I think that you're absolutely right in saying that it can be confusing, it can be complicated, but I'm going to give your listeners the benefit of the doubt and that they are smart people and that they can read and process information. And that's going to be, that's going to be really important to, to keep doing uh, throughout this process to see, to learn, to read, and to really internalize the uh the the war that we find ourselves in um and 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 the deep tragedies and all that's involved in it well josh i just want to thank you for your time and your leadership i know uh this is an agonizing uh, moment for you and your family as it is for so many encourage everyone to visit arzaartsa.org uh, where you can learn more about what the reform movement is doing in its Zionist activities led by Josh and ways that you can subscribe also to his newsletter and get more information. And uh, we pray collectively for the strength and the resilience of the state of Israel and her people and that the war there should be concluded swiftly and effectively and decisively and that peace will soon be restored. Josh, thanks so much for being with us. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboka.org slash essential questions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboka.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions Podcast. Thank you.